Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of 51 Stories of Emotional Wellbeing with Emotional Ability Resources. Today, I have with me Rohin Bhatt, a young queer lawyer who has a very interesting take to life and who has done his bit to champion the cause of queer laws. Apart from that, he's currently a student at Harvard Medical School and is studying bioethics. So welcome to my show, Rohin. Thank you for having me. So tell me something uh, which you feel is very, very important in your journey. How has Rohin Bhatt become the Rohin Bhatt that we know of today? Well, so I think for me, it all started when I came out. Uh, after coming out, I think what was very important for me was to kind of seek help. I think what we are, especially as Indians, are told to do is bottle it all up. But I think for me, it all started up when I came out. I saw therapy, saw psychiatrists, got on you know medications for anxiety. I think that to me has been perhaps the most important step in my journey towards uh, my own emotional well-being. You know, the, the stigma around these seeking help for uh, your mental health is so obtuse in India that I think. The first step is acknowledging to yourself that you need help and then taking steps to ensure that, that you actually seek the help that you know that you need. So for me, I think what has been the most important is A, accepting to myself that I am in need of help and B, actively taking steps to seek that help. For me, there was quite a long difference between those two steps. I think there's nearly a month which had been, you know, kind of punctuated by a couple of suicide attempts between like coming out and actually coming out, recognizing that I am having mental health issues and then going on to actually seek the help that I require. I think that has been the most important step for me. Thank you so much for sharing your story. But will you tell us a little bit more about it? How was it growing up, you know? Like, uh, how uh -huh. did you feel when you were growing up? Any issues in school or with family or friends? So, growing up, I grew up being bullied all throughout middle school and high school. Uh, thankfully, I've not had any issues ever with friends or family. They have been nothing but accepting and loving me for who I am. Uh, but I know that that is not the lived reality of most queer people in their lives. Uh, so I think I'm really lucky. Again, I also come from a position of immense caste and class privilege. So that I'm, I'm sure has factored in at some place, not only how I go about myself, but what kind of you know resources I was uh, exposed to, the kind of psychiatric and psychological care that I received today, you know, the kind of education that I'm getting, the kind of the kind of uh, books that I read as a child, the kind of movies that I watched, I think all that has played into uh, what I, where I got to be today. Having said that, I think it is important that, you know, we address bullying as a public health crisis in India. I'm not sure if you know it, but a few months ago, uh, uh, a child died because of homophobic bullying in school in, I think, Florida. And I did write about it then that this is a public health crisis. Queer kids are getting bullied in school left, right, and center. The schools have no ways to deal with it. You know, schools have 
their teachers have no idea how to deal with that. And I'm not saying that the teachers don't want to help their kids. I'm not, I'm sure my teachers might have wanted to help me out because that I was bullying was an open fact. Getting bullied was an open fact. But did the teachers have the, that those resources to help me deal not only with bullying, but help me deal with my own fearless? I'm not so sure. Uh, what happened was the national uh, NCERT put out a manual for teacher training and the National Commission for Protection of Child Rights stepped in and said, you can't be doing this. This goes against child rights. And they have blood on their hands. NCPCR and its chairman have blood on their hands. And I say this because there are kids getting bullied in school every day. The teachers do not have uh, tools to deal with it. What this manual sought to do was to uh, provide teachers with those tools to deal, help kids deal with their own fairness, to make sure that not only are your school policies get more queer friendly, but also that you have, you know, infrastructures like gender neutral bathrooms in school that could potentially help, you know, kids who are gender non-conforming to address that. And, and I do tend to get political and impacted about these things because I feel at its core, mental health is a political issue. As long as Health and mental health are both political issues. And as long as we don't talk about the politics of mental health and in these conversations about emotional and mental well-being, I think we are going to be staying away of a very important social determinant of mental health. I think that's a very, a very interesting take that you have for us today, you know, that mental health and emotional well-being is a political issue. And when we explore deeply, we definitely realize that, you know, because a lot of homophobia or any kind of uh, stilted thinking or rigid thinking stems from lack of exposure or there are a lot of other social determinants at play which we are not even aware of it could be caste it could be economic background it could be cultural determinants it could be hundreds of factors which are there so tell me how do you take care of your emotional well-being on a daily basis and how do you deal with this politicization of uh, an issue that affects you on a daily basis i think for me taking care has been to journalism, you know, whenever I speak up against the powers that be in India today, uh, my DMs are filled with death threats. Uh, you know, I get all sorts of messages on Instagram and Twitter. And for me, what has been uh, getting me through it is journaling, kind of putting it all down, helps me, you know, get, I tend to, since I have a generalized anxiety disorder, I tend to overthink. And for me, journaling helps me, um, keep up with my thoughts, it often get out of hand. It helps me kind of rationalize, it helps me put thoughts on paper, seeing what could be possible, what could not be possible. And it, it, the way it helped me as somebody who was kind of very suspect when my therapist asked me to start journaling, I think this, is, this has been a massive step for me. To anybody who's uh, suspicious about journaling, like I was for a major chunk of time, I'd say get to it. It really does help. Thank you for saying that because, you know, as a therapist in my last uh, 15 years, I've seen a lot of people are very wary of journaling. They're like, somebody will read. And many a times I have to tell them, you are here because you don't feel heard and people don't have time. So how about just hearing yourself for a change? And uh, this stigma towards journaling is also something, you know, which is, 
perhaps cultural, perhaps political, or perhaps just the media. What is your take on it? Why do people resist journaling? Since you yourself have resisted and you know overcome that barrier, I want you to tell us a little bit more about it. I think for me, it kind of, and there's a journal entry about this, and I speak as I was preparing for today, I was going through my journal about looking at how things actually happened over the course of the past one, one and a half years. And fascinating thing is that as somebody who grew up bullying, I thought I did not have anything important to say. I said, why would even I want to read what I write in my journal, you know? And so putting down that first twice today journal entry, which is the first entry in my journal today, uh, has been perhaps the most cathartic experience that I've had while journaling. That I have something important to say, that I could be hearing myself and that other people have been, uh, you know, that other people will want to hear, I see. Uh, you know, for most longest of times, I did not put out my work in public because I was scared, you know, I am saying something important. Finding my own journaling helped me find my own voice. It helped me realize that I have things to say that I am a person who deserves to be heard. You know, as somebody who has faced marginalization on account of my caste, uh, sexual orientation, and I do realize that, again, I come from a position of immense privilege, but having still faced the brunt of marginalization and being pushed away to where I to where I thought it was not, I had nothing important to say. Journaling gave me gave me my own voice. It helped me find my own voice, and in that, it helped me not only professionally because now I publish far more. Uh, I publish far more on public platforms in academic journals, and realizing that I have more something more important to say, and so for me that has been important, knowing, knowing that I deserve to be heard. And in so far as people's concerned about, concerns about, you know, their journals getting read, I think that's a very legitimate concern. I don't think, you know, it's something that we should be brushing aside. And to them, I say this, the way I journal is that I have a separate email account of passwords are only with me. And most of those journals are emails sent to myself a few days after you know, I schedule those emails so that I can come back to them when I receive a notification after a day or two. I think that has been cathartic and that has also ensured, you know, I'm very suspicious of people kind of swoop, swooping in on my journal because at some level I feel like I'm, that, that the thing is immensely personal and I'm still dealing with whether or not I should allow people to read parts of those journals. So having a separate email ID and sending me emails from a different email account to that account in the future has really helped me. And I'm not saying it is for everybody, you know, some people, some of my friends who also journal for writing it in a notebook and pen, that is a valid tool. And that has, that's how journaling has been happening, you know, through ages, through and Frank until today. But I feel, yeah, whatever works for you, honestly, I have seen people do all sorts of things. I have a friend who, the way they journal is, they use different art colors for their mood, and that's their journal. And the code that only they know is yet another friend who kind of collects flowers of a, of a certain kind to help them deal with emotions and presses those flowers in between books and preserves them. I don't know how they do it. Seems really interesting, but not for me. But so 
Journaling doesn't have to be in a specific format. You don't have to kind of have a pretty bullet journal and have the perfect handwriting that goes with it. If you do, you know, good for you. But journaling helps you process your emotions in a way that works for you through your hobbies and through your moods. Yes, and that was really very nice, you know. It helps you personalize your experiences. And I think once you are personalizing your experience, it doesn't matter whether the other person doesn't or does not, you know, so uh, thank you. That was really very nice. As a self-validating tool, I think that was really perfect. So uh, who has been your role model and somebody whom you look up to? There has not been a single role model, if I can say that. But there have been people, you know, queer people who came before me, people who put themselves out there and it was still illegal to be gay in India. And trans people who still deal in face of all in face of all the bigotry in India, you know, they are absolute powerhouses. They are the people who kind of inspire me to do the work that I do. They inspire me to be better. They are giants on whose shoulders I stand today, being able to be openly out and proud. So it's difficult for me to lock it down to one person, but it's all the three of people who came before me, you know, whose shoulders I stand. Uh, Every single queer person whose story I've read about, you know, all throughout history, I think all of them have led inspirational lives. Thank you for sharing that. Because a lot of times, you know, it's very difficult to swim against the tide and to have the courage to do it and listen to your own voice is something not many manage to do. Any books or any uh, media offerings that have uh, inspired you or which relax you? Oh, yes. So this is what happens when somebody asks me for my favorite book. I forget all the books I've ever read. Uh, I hope you can edit this part out. I'm going to fumble for a second, but books that bring me joy. I think what has brought me joy is this book called All Boys Aren't Blue. Another book that's, that I've been uh, reading a lot these days is, is this book called Aristotle and Dante. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Media, I tend to listen to a lot of Taylor Swift, God bless her. Mm-hmm. Her music brings me joy. Uh, I tend to binge watch a lot of series, serial killer shows, which I feel like would not be the healthiest coping mechanism. <laughs> <laughs> that does kind of help me relax when things are going to going down the drain. Yeah, but that, that's so honest, you know, and I feel we need to stop judging what another is doing. Not everybody needs to be intellectual. Not everybody needs to be socially correct or accepted. What's right. important is you hear your own voice. So uh, if you had one word to describe Rohin, mm-hmm. which one would you pick up and why? Anxious <laughs> is the only word that comes to mind. I feel like I can't be the best word given your audience, but you know, there is, there is, uh, I feel certain uh, merit in accepting that, you know, even after you have all the tools you need, after you have the medication, the psychiatric health, the therapy that you need, that things do sometimes get out of hand. You, even despite this tool, there is a scope for imperfection in your 
behavior. There's sometimes tools for there is you are allowed to be imperfect. As, you know, yeah, in and imperfect are two words that come to mind. I, I think that's beautiful and so beautifully you said, you know, and in our culture and uh, most global cultures, we don't like the word imperfection. And that's why I love the Japanese technique, you know, where they fill it up with gold every time you're broken somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you fill it up. So uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, any inspirational uh, tips that you want to leave our viewers with or something that you want to talk about before we sign out? This is not my tip, but this is a tip that I came across on Twitter a few weeks ago. And that was, you know, finding joy is perhaps the most radical thing you can do as a queer person. And the idea was that finding one moment of joy in a world where you, know, you are faced with insurmountable challenges, you know, is, is the radical act of rebellion in itself. And the idea was that joy is an afferent to hate that comes out from homophobes and the societal norms, you know, it, we, as we, we are globally, I guess, not just in India, there are very societal norms of how a man or a woman should behave and the, what is desirable and not desirable in the society. For me, I think finding my own joy has been an affront to it. Every time I get a hateful DM, I think of find, finding joy and in smallest acts, you know, be it finding a nice book or a nice poem or a nice play to read or watch has been for me an incredible act. And with the pandemic, I realized that, you know, most queer people were forced into their own houses where, which often turned into sites of violence. So I think it is essential to not only as an act of rebellion, but to our survival that we find joy. The systems you know, that work today on social media and around the world in, the, in politics and economics make the rich richer and the poor poorer. And these systems undoubtedly perpetuate hate and violence against people of all marginalized identities. I think it is necessary in that background to recognize that there is joy and then to exploit our own joy for our own well-being and that is what has been helpful to me to not let them take away your joy and your hope i think that's so beautiful you know and uh, calcutta where i come from is known as the city of joy and known for mother teresa and joy is mm -hmm. something which we discount in our pursuit for a lot of things you're currently uh, just uh, going through your course on bioethics. So how do you intend to use that learning, you know, to champion your own cause and for the mental health and well-being of uh, others? I think for me, I think I see bioethics as something that is everybody's business, you know. Abortion is not somebody else's issue or, you know, a complex Surgery like a uterine transplant, for example, which has been in the news recently, is not somebody else's issue. It affects every single one of us. And for me, what has happening in bioethics is that it has been dominated, like other fields, by cis white men living in third world countries who are mostly, in first world countries who are mostly heterosexual. For me, I think I see my role as a bioethicist and a lawyer to give platform to those 
who have been left out of these discourses, to, who have been left out of debates around their own bodies, to give them the platform and center conversations around them rather than people sitting outside of different social assisting outside in different socio-political circumstances in different economic circumstances. I think what has happened is we need to claim our own spaces in these discourses, both in law and in bioethics. For me, throughout this year, one thing I have been focused on is how can bioethics move away from this discourse around, you know, what has been happening in the West, to recognizing that there are bioethical discourses in the East that are taking place without being called bioethical discourses. And to ensure that people, everybody has a seat at the table in these discourses. These discourses may seem like abstract philosophical uh, concepts that you know should only concern the West, but they are not. They come down to us in India and they will come down to every single one of us, whether we like it or not, you know. Access to care, which is one of the most important bioethics issue, is going to affect the prime minister of the country when he has to seek care to somebody sitting in a rural village in Maharashtra equally. Now, sure. what I seek to do through my work is to kind of look at how normatively and descriptively both of these people should have an access to equal care and more so focusing on queer people who have been. Uh, pushed outside, their identities pathologized and being sought to either cure or jail on account of their identity. So my work, as I want to do it right now, focuses on centering these people in legal and bioethical discourses. I think that's really very nice that, you know, every person needs a seat at the table. It's not something which is a fancy uh, Western concept, you know, to be debated on and to be written about in journal papers, but the real life implications for people in low resource settings, whether it's in the back of beyond, or whether you are in a plush uh, government uh, posting, you know, it, I, I think that's really, really very uh, pertinent. So uh, anything else that you want to talk about Rohin before we sign off? No, I think that's it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's indeed been a pleasure chatting with you and all the very best in all your endeavors. Thank you so much.